This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, apologies for the slightly late start, but you'll have noticed it's a rather full house today. My name's Nick Barley, and I'm the director of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and a very warm welcome to all of you. Thanks for coming along today. There are certain times, I always feel privileged to do this job, but there are certain times when I really feel honoured to be the director of this great festival, and this is certainly one of them. Now, uh, a full house for an event about particle physics is a great thing, and I thank you for that. And Frank Close is a good friend of the festival, a professor at Oxford University, and he came here two years ago to talk about antimatter, and that was a great event. And so when I heard from Oxford University Press that he had a new book coming called The Infinity Puzzle, I immediately said that we'd like to invite him back. And that was great. And we launched the program, and tickets were selling nicely. But then, of course, on the 4th of July this year, everything changed. And I know you know what happened. Uh, there was that press release. We'd been, we actually, we'd been expecting it, a press release, and then the BBC story that a Higgs boson-like particle had been discovered at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. And we knew that everything would change for one Peter Higgs after that. Peter Higgs, who, of course, had been a professor at Edinburgh University, um, the first professor of theoretical physics at Edinburgh University until 1996, and then he became emeritus professor thereafter, which he still is. And so when it emerged that Peter Higgs would like to chair today's event, <laughs> how could we not let him do so? And so I thought I should come up and explain that this is an unusual one, because Peter uh, hasn't chaired any events before, and if, if um, he's an, a novice at it, I'm sure you'll forgive him. Um, I'll be on hand just in case there are any problems. But <laughs> would you mind, I think, giving a very special historic welcome to uh, Frank Close and Peter Higgs. We've got until two o'clock, so feel free to carry on. <laughs> uh, the, the plan that uh, I had was to spend uh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes maximum, giving you some background. The book, The Infinity Puzzle, was the story of the 50 years quest, which I wrote in advance of what happened on July the 4th, obviously, because the book has been out for several months. And then after July the 4th, as they say, everything changed. So I thought I would tell you a little bit about that as background, and then Peter and I will have a conversation about our impressions, but throwing it open to you to ask questions as well. So to give you some sort of background of things, I thought I would start with an analogy. Well, first of all, if this is going on on Twitter, that's who I am. Um, this is Scotland, and I thought I'd draw an analogy with, of course, the Scottish play of Shakespeare. If Shakespeare had changed a few lines in Macbeth, it would have still been a wonderful story. If Einstein had changed even a few symbols in the theory of relativity, the whole thing would have fallen apart. That is one essential difference between literature and the arts and science. You can make wonderful constructions in science, but if nature doesn't do it that way, it's not relevant. And it is experiment that determines what is relevant as against what is just beautiful literature. And that's the background to our quest today, which is that many years ago, uh, well, Peter and some other scientists who we'll mention came up with a brilliant idea of how to make one little adjustment within the great structures of science without the whole edifice falling apart. Because the quest was this. Why is it that all the debris left over from the Big Bang didn't just fly around aimlessly at the speed of light doing nothing? How is it that 13.6 billion years later, structures are formed? I mean, atoms and molecules, the seeds of you, me, and everything that we are aware of. And the question of how structure emerged out of that original chaos is essentially the question which we now know experimentally the answer to, or are beginning to, as we will see. So that was the, the challenge. And it was in 1964 that Peter here, showing his adroitness of being able to write back to front and left and right-handed at the same time, uh, wrote this theory. Now, that was in 1964. Those equations have then led now to the following. 
2012, we have a 27-kilometre ring underneath the hills near Geneva with magnets in it, whirling particles around it and leave the speed of light. They smash into each other, recreating for a moment the sort of conditions that the universe itself was like just after the Big Bang. The epoch, if the theory was correct, where Higgs bosons, as we call them, were bubbling around all the time. So recreate those conditions in the experiment and see if the idea really is right. You have special cameras and you have these things that are the size of battleships there. Here is an image on the computer of what happens when the particles smash in the middle and produce sprays of particles. That one is probably the decay of a Higgs boson. And there, in much more artist glory, you could stick that on your wall as a piece of artwork, if you like, but it is also fundamental at the frontiers of knowledge. The teams, the number of people that were involved in building the accelerator, designing and building the apparatus to detect all these things, runs into the thousands. And this is a photograph not of the people working on the experiments. That is a photograph of one of the experiments and not all of their people. Those are the ones that turned up for a collaboration meeting. There are about 3,000 people on each of the experiments and that doesn't include thousands of names of engineers and people who over the years have been working on it. It's a huge collective enterprise worldwide that's been involved. Contrast that then with 100 years ago. Here is a picture of Geiger and Rutherford in the laboratory at Manchester after having discovered the structure of the nuclear atom with a little piece of apparatus on a bench top. Contrast that with where we are now. The day, well, Peter and I met a couple of months ago before the latest hiatus, but the Times in a leader article had this rather over-the-top statement that we are at the cusp of a once in two million years discovery, which was very appropriate for the day of this Melrose uh, discussion, because of course that's literally correct. A discovery can only ever happen once, can't it? So there you are. So I thought I'd just say a few words about... <laughs> I've just got to keep get warmed up here, you know. <laughs> it's not all the work at this end. <laughs> so uh, I thought I'd just say a few background things to give you a sense of what this is all about, and uh, then we'll have the, the discussion. So th there are four forces of nature at work, which we are aware of there in this picture here. It's the electromagnetic force and the weak force that we're interested in. The electromagnetic force is the one that makes the sun radiate its heat towards us. This picture, incidentally, is of the transit of Venus, which has nothing whatsoever to do with this talk, except occasionally, even as an old scientist, you get this sense of wonder. When you realise that that black blob, Venus, is the same size as the Earth, and that's in the foreground... So it really shows you how vast the sun really is. It's a, occasionally in moments like that you get that <sighs> astonishment. And that is indeed what happened on July the 4th in another context, as we will hear. But this picture illustrates two of these forces. The electromagnetic force, which is radiating light across space. The electromagnetic force is the thing that holds the atoms together and makes you and me. And if you jiggle them enough, they radiate electromagnetic radiation, light which comes in quantum theory in little bundles called photons, which have no mass at all. The weak force is one that you may not know about, but it is the one that's essential to changing one variety of element into another, as in the centre of the sun. The sun is turning the seeds of hydrogen, that's its basic fuel, into helium, the next element in the periodic table, and radiating energy in the process. And the force that does that is called the weak force. To give you an idea of how weak it is, if you or I were protons, the nuclei of hydrogen atoms, five billion years ago, when the sun started burning, there would still only be a 50-50 chance that you or I has bumped into one another and turned into the seeds of helium. That shows you how feeble the force is. And you realise it's important that it's feeble, because if it was more strong, the sun would have burnt out already. So the fact that we're here today, the fact that the sun has been living long enough for sentient life to evolve on Earth is in part because the weak force is weak. And the weak force is weak because it also has a radiation like photons, called W bosons for weak, but they are very, very massive. It's because they're massive the force is feeble, because the force is feeble the sun burns slowly, because the sun burns slowly evolution has managed to happen. So the mass of this W particle is critical to our existence. Mass is going to be the key word in this. So let me just say a few words about the electromagnetic force so we can lead into the discussion. 
Back in the 1920s, 1930s, Paul Dirac, a mathematician in Cambridge, who also comes from Bristol, which is another of the many connections with Peter, um, created the modern theory of the electromagnetic force. He combines quantum theory and Einstein's relativity with the theory, due to Maxwell, here in Scotland a century ago, of electromagnetism to make what we call quantum electrodynamics, a wonderful theory which can calculate things to amazing precision. Accuracies of one part in a trillion. It's like being able to measure the width of the Atlantic with the width of a human hair. That is the extent to which this theory of the electromagnetic force works. One of the critical things why it works is because the photon has got no mass. If you use that theory and try to calculate anything beyond the simplest approximations, you get infinity. You have to get rid of infinity. Infinity is nonsense. If you get infinity, it says you've not got a theory. Get rid of the infinity, and then you get that wonderful accuracy. And you can get rid of the infinity because the photon has no mass. The weak force, however, its analogue does have mass. You can't get rid of the infinity. Until in 1971, these two people showed how to do it and won the Nobel Prize for that. And they did it by using two essential features. One was they used an idea due to Glashow, Salam and Weinberg, shown here receiving their Nobel Prize. Only three people at most can win a Nobel Prize. And the fourth person, John Ward, was not included. That's a side story in my book as to why he was left out. And I don't know the answer. Um, so they had an idea of uniting electromagnetic and weak forces together. And to make it work, you had to use a further idea, which is due to these six gentlemen, Peter at the top, and the other five of what is known affectionately as the Gang of Six. And they showed how to make mass appear into the theory we now know without all of these nasty infinities being there. As a result of this, we now have a theory which we can calculate with and work and to the best experiments possible, fits the numbers, that we now have a description of nature. So these are the gang of six, and of course only at most three can win a Nobel Prize, which has been one of the things that a lot of people are talking about. The economist, I just show this, made a very, very nice comment. The Nobel Committee will be well advised to read Mr. Close's book before making their decision. So I hope that doubles the sales. And the critical thing, and why we're talking to Peter today, is that the six gentlemen, independently, in three groups, in the space of a few months, straddling the summer of 1964, the two, Broughton Anglaire in June, Peter in July, and then the remaining three, Granik, Hagen and Kibble, in October, discovered this clever way of making mass into the theory. But only Peter pointed out that there is an experimental consequence of this which can be used to test whether it's Shakespeare or whether it's nature, if you like. The implication that if this theory is a correct description of nature, there will be this ephemeral particle known today as the Higgs boson, whose properties can be measured. So if it is indeed the case that the mass of fundamental particles is due to what I call the mechanism, this clever mathematics, then it's the production and decays of this ephemeral particle that will prove it. And finding that boson named after Peter is the key, or was the key, because now we believe that we have evidence for it. And uh, here's a picture that I just threw in at the last minute, because um, there were lots of interviews at CERN on the 4th of July, and uh, one of the people who was getting rather less prominence than others said, uh, well, Peter must have better drinking pals than the rest of us, or something like that. So there's a picture of Peter with his drinking pals. So uh, that is the background of the book and the background of the conversation that I will have with Peter now. And let's get started and uh, uh, draw breath, I think. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, I've been watching the Olympics. Has anybody here not been watching the Olympics? And has anybody here not got irritated that every time somebody wins a gold medal, they say, can you tell me how it felt? <laughs> So, Peter, can you tell me how it felt? <laughs> well, the, the, uh, the seminar at CERN was a really remarkable occasion. Um, it, 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 it had uh, people queuing up the night before to get in. Uh, and um, when, it, when it finished uh, and the announcement was made that the two experimental teams had got a, a so-called five-sigma dis discovery. Um, 
there, there was a, applause, a standing ovation, uh, cheers broke out, and it was rather, rather like the end of a football match where the home team have won than, than a scientific seminar. So something it was, that people in Scotland are not that something that people in Scotland are that familiar with supporting that. <laughs> Carry on, sorry, this is your occasion, not mine. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, it, 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 was, uh, it was a really overwhelming experience. Actually, overwhelming is a, a, a nice description. I was uh, a few weeks ago in, in Dublin, uh, and the CERN director and one of the, uh, the head of the Accelerator were present. And the head of the Accelerator was trying to describe to the audience how he felt the moment he suddenly realised it was all real. And he started doing what I'm doing now, beginning to get overwhelmed. And trying to explain the overwhelming sense that somehow one's done something which you're not allowed to. You have written equations on a piece of paper about how nature works, and then you've done an experiment which shows that that is indeed how nature works. And I had this sort of sense that somebody was going to come out of the sky and say, you're not allowed to do that, boy. <laughs> um, but I mean, were you surprised? I was surprised about the timing, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, as, as, I'm, as I'm sure you know, the, the, there have been hints coming out of CERN uh, for the past year or more that uh, this, this discovery might be on its way, and I didn't really expect it to happen until later this year. Uh, in fact, it all came together in the last 10 days or so. In fact, it, it happened uh, in other words, the, the possibility that they would have a discovery claim uh, really arrived while Frank and I were at, at the summer school in, in Sicily. With, with your drinking pals. Uh, where, yes. where, where you see my, uh, me with my drinking buddies. And um, w when I went off to, <coughs> to Sicily for the summer school, <coughs> I was so sure from talking to uh, people involved in these experiments that they wouldn't have enough time to do the analysis to get to, through to this discovery, uh, that I, I went to Sicily with, with a, a travel insurance policy which expired on the 1st of July. Uh, no, the 2nd, actually, but, but before, before, the, before the seminar. Uh, uh, no Swiss francs. And uh, I simply wasn't expecting what happened during that week, during which hints kept coming through that the discovery was getting close. And it wasn't until the Saturday, the 30th of June, that I finally got a message from John Ellis at CERN, a theoretician who's been very much involved in, in, in this whole business, who said, um, Tell Peter if he doesn't come to G G Geneva on the 4th of July, he will very probably regret it. So at that point I said, OK, I'll go. Right. <laughs> and uh, have you regretted, well, this is not the right way to say it perhaps, but overnight suddenly your, your life has changed, that uh, you're besieged by people all the time. Have you felt different? How, how do you feel the good and bad of all this is? Well, it hasn't been quite as sudden as you may may think, because uh, I mean, as I remarked, the, uh, the the progress of the experiments at CERN has been uh, announced periodically over a period of a year. First of all, uh, July of last year, there was a hint. Uh, it's it got firmer in December, but it still wasn't a uh, discovery claim, uh, and uh, in fact, as long ago as last July, I, I had one ex-colleague at Edinburgh University phone me up and congratulate me. Uh, I, I think he was maybe a, a little bit naive about statistics, and uh, it was certainly premature then. But over the year, people have, uh, in Edinburgh have certainly got the impression that something was on its way. And I've got used to the experience of being stopped in the street and asked for an autograph or a photograph or something of that sort. And it's just the, since July the 4th, 
all this has increased by an order of magnitude or two. Yes. The pile of emails on my floor is, is that high instead of that high. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I experienced this this morning because uh, photographers were out there taking pictures and uh, the moment that they got you in front of the screen to take pictures, I decided to take a photograph of the photographers, uh, but I couldn't see you. <laughs> and I thought, I'd put this out on the, on the web with the title, Looking for Higgs, Can You Distinguish, <laughs> Can you distinguish the, the Signal from the Noise? <laughs> um, but probably it might be just worthwhile for a second before we get into questions from the audience to uh, amplify quite, you know, why it takes so long to get this experimental result it's been two years that this machine has been working, that you smash these particles together time and time again, and you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and sometimes, uh, if the theory is correct, a Higgs boson will be formed, and it dies immediately. You don't actually see it. You see the trails that it leaves. The problem is lots of things leave trails that look like that. And so you have to do over and over again, accumulating more and more examples, until you can be sure that a special signature is beginning to show through. And so the analogy is like you know, tossing coins. If I've got a double-headed coin, it will come up heads every time. Um, if I've got a, a, a random coin, it'll come up 50%. If I've got a coin which is slightly loaded, it will come up heads more often than chance, but how long do you have to keep tossing it before you're sure? And after a few tosses, it might be six of one and four of the other, but we all know that doesn't tell you anything. So this magic phrase five sigma that is used is the same as saying, if I was to toss a coin and it came up heads 21 times in a row, it's that level of, uh, you know, is that chance or, or not? Or uh, going to a, a casino that's honest, if you can find one, and uh, betting on the same number and roulette four times in a row. And if you're successful, you know, it's like that. So it's at that level of certainty that we're at, that if you believe it is possible to win at roulette four times in a row, don't believe in this discovery. If however you think that at that level you're confident, are you confident? I'm pretty confident, yes. I mean, it's the, the interesting thing for me now is, is, is for the experimentalists to discover uh, just what kind of Higgs boson it is. Because all that was said back in 1964 is, was that if you have a, a theory of this type, then there must be at least one particle of this, of this kind with a, a, a spin zero particle, spinless particle uh, with, uh, with some mass or other. There, there could be more and the, the, there, the, there are interesting possibilities still to, still to be explored at the L LHC. Right, I mean we, we probably could amplify that a bit but I may, let's go to some questions first of all from the audience and if somebody's uh, in control of the roving microphone, uh, gentleman right in the middle of the row there if you can get it to him, and if we can't hear the question, I'll repeat it for the people. And others who want to ask questions, can you put your hands up so I can sort of look? So people that are reasonably accessible will get a better deal. Yes, sir, go ahead. Uh, thank you. My, my question was, what's next, uh, building on what you were saying? So what's going to be the next um, theory that needs a large and uh, long and uh, time-consuming experiment to, to, um, to verify it? Right, if, if, you, if you can pass the microphone down to the gentleman in the second row here, then we can carry on with that. So the question is, you know, what's next? Um, well, in part, you alluded to that a moment ago when you said, is this the whole story? Is there more than one Higgs boson? Do you want to amplify on what you mean by that? Uh, well, first, first of all, um, I mean, they, they've, uh, they, they've, they've found, found something which, which seems to be the right, right kind of, of thing to be called a Higgs boson. Uh, there's a, a lot of ongoing work to m measure its properties, what it, whatever it is precisely. In, in other words, uh, there's more, more data analysis to be done. There's lots more data for them to look at. Uh, and uh, in that way, they will sort of sharp, sharpen up the, the knowledge of, of what this thing is like that they've, they've already found. The, uh, that that will provide some some hints maybe of what what else is to come, mm. uh, and there may be maybe other other particles of this kind around somewhere which they haven't yet uh, found higher higher energy or something of that sort. Uh, all all this is is really 
uh, sort of tying up loose ends from a pre-existing theoretical structure called the standard model. But even when those loose ends uh, are tied up, it isn't the end of the story because the, although the standard models are quite a neat theory which explains a lot, there are all sorts of things in elementary particle physics which we, we don't understand with the help of the standard model. And the next stage will be to, to, to push beyond the standard model and see what, what lies beyond it at, at higher energies. And that's for the future. Yes, I mean, to, to amplify on that, that even if we have found the explanation of why everything that we know of has, has mass and certain properties, we've only explained at most 4% of everything because there's this mysterious stuff called dark matter that the astronomers know is there because of the way it tugs on galaxies of stars, but it doesn't shine at any wavelength. So whatever it is, it is not made of stuff that we so far know. And the possibility that the Large Hadron Collider will discover the fundamental particles that make dark matter is very exciting. There's a theory around called supersymmetry, which is a particular example of such a theory. And if those ideas are indeed correct, the question of what gives those particles their masses is out there. And that, I think, to be fair, is what you're referring to. That, yes, uh, indeed. That the simplest uh, idea that uh, you and people discussed 48 years ago really touches on the stuff we know. The extensions of that are what I think experiments will, will guide us to. Um, one other thing before we, we come to your question, sir, is that although we now, I think, have discovered the way that mass arises, why it is that particular particles have the particular masses they have, we haven't got a clue. If the electron had a larger mass than it does, the radioactive processes beta decays would not happen in some cases. If it was lighter than it is, they would be disturbed in other ways. So the fact that we are here is a very delicate balance of magic numbers. And what the explanation of that is, we don't know. And I hope that there will be some quirk in the experiment which will give us a clue. Yes, and another, another thing which perhaps I should mention is, is that uh, all, all the matter we, we know of um, in, in ordinary, everyday life uh, comes from uh, the, the first of three sets of particles that that mm. we, we, we have discovered o over the, the, the last, well, 50, more than 50 years. And uh, the, one of the mysteries is, is why are these, why are the, these extra, extra copies of, of, uh, of, them, of, of what we already need for ordinary matter? That they, they give rise to strange th things called strange matter or charmed matter or whatever, but what, why are they there? There's, there's nothing in the theory we have at the moment which, which tells us what, why, why that should happen. Exactly, and in fact, as was mentioned at the start, when I was here two years ago, I was talking about antimatter, and the other big question is, why is there anything left at all? Why didn't the universe self-destruct by matter-antimatter annihilation? So there's many questions, and I hope that the Large Hadron Collider might lead us to them. The problem is we don't know how far we have to go to get there. The analogy that I've been sort of talking about is that it's as if we discovered the continent of America. We have now, as of the 4th of July, landed. We know that it is there. What we're trying to find are the gold fields of California. What we don't yet know is whether we've landed on the East Coast or the West Coast. And if we've landed on the West Coast, we will know very soon. If we've landed on the East Coast, it'll be a long haul. But only nature knows for the moment. Sir, at last, your chance to ask a question. Sorry for so long. I'll repeat it if you can't hear at the back, sorry. Um, at what level do you perceive the limitation of technology in terms of <clears throat> putting in a, a large amount of energy to get information about smaller and smaller particles? What is, the, what is our technological limitation on that? Um, what is the technological limitation on us being able to investigate smaller and smaller particles? Is the Large Hadron Collider the end of the story, or are there things we can go beyond, do you reckon? Well, there are, there are, there are other things being talked about, uh, and ha things which have been talked about for, for, a, for a long time. And one, one of the uh, kinds of machine uh, you know, on, on the horizon 
being, that being investigated already is a so-called linear collider where you don't uh, take particle, charged particles around in a circle and keep whacking them to get them mo moving, moving with more energy, but you, you collide particles along a linear track. That's, that, that, uh, that kind of uh, uh, collider ha has its attractions, amongst which is that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't generate so much uh, wasted energy and is, is um, therefore a, 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 well, a good thing in terms of, of, of energy use. And uh, there are other things which, which are being thought of, um, I think, uh, on the not-so-distant horizon. I mean, so, uh, somebody has come up with a proposal for a so-called Higgs factory to, to produce these particles who had only just been found in, in much larger quantities. That's, a, I think, a relatively modest machine in terms of, of, of cost and so on. But there are all sorts of things which, which use uh, different, different, different techniques from, from the, uh, the, the one that goes into the, the present machine. Sorry, I, I was smiling when you said a Higgs factory. They will call it a Higgs factory because you're going to pay for it. Is that the idea? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, in fact, of course, the, uh, another way of approaching this question, I think, is this is the centenary of the discovery of cosmic rays. And it was actually the discovery of strange particles in cosmic rays in 1947 era that really gave rise to modern particle physics, where we were trying on Earth to build accelerators that could simulate those conditions that nature provides for us naturally. We could do experiments under controlled conditions. And cosmic rays are hitting... They're particles emitted by catastrophic events in outer space, and some of them hit the upper atmosphere and give showers of particles, which are streaming through you and me right now. But they have energies far in excess of anything that we can make at the Large Hadron Collider, or anything we can imagine making tens, 20, 30, 40 years in the future. So I think that hoping to find discoveries in cosmic rays is an area that one can proceed in uh, accessing higher and higher energies. Thank you. Thank you very much for your contributions, gentlemen. Um, if one accepts that there are four fundamental forces in the universe, electromagnetic, mm -hmm. strong force, weak force, and gravity, the G word, um, and if one accepts that if one attempts to place gravity in the equations used within, necessarily within quantum theory, and therefore if one accepts that this um, breaks apart quantum theory, and yet one accepts that gravity exists, how is quantum theory therefore to be made compatible with general relativity theories, plural? And to follow on from this point, is it the case therefore that really what we are confronted with is the possibility, perhaps the fact, that the models that we use for to base quantum theory within and the model that we use to base general relativity theories within are both partially right and partially wrong therefore and that we really we are on a, a cusp of finding a different model within which to begin our theories. Right, well let me point that to you. Um, I think the, the real question behind this is quantum theory of gravity we do not have. Um, what are the prospects for that? Where does it fit into the situation that we're currently at? Well, um, maybe I should try to develop uh, an answer to, to that question, putting on my, my very theoretical hat. Um, one, of the, one of the motivations for what is called supersymmetry, which is a, a kind of symmetry which which uh, many people w would like to believe is, is uh, a property of the universe, but w for which we, we don't yet have any evidence, though it's hoped that the LHC will, will provide that evidence. Uh, one of the motivations for, for supersymmetry is that it, it seems to provide the only uh, reasonable route to unification of uh, gravity, uh, Einstein general relativity, with uh, with with the quantum theory of all these uh, these other other systems, uh, and it it does that by 
introducing a, a kind of symmetry in which the, the, there are far more particles than just the, well, what, what a quantum theorist would describe as a graviton, a quantum of, of, the, of gravitational radiation, uh, but other things as, as well which make the properties of the theory rather better than what you get if you just try to quantize Einstein gravity, which gives you essentially nonsense, apparently. Now, this may not, not be sufficient, but it looks at least uh, like a necessary step. It may not be sufficient because the theories of this type which have been explored so far uh, don't seem to uh, arrive uh, at, a f at a fully calculable theory. The, the people who do what's called superstring theory uh, go a stage further and, uh, and have a theoretical framework in which this seems to be possible, but at least you, it seems you, you need to go in that direction, and that is the, uh, the direction in which the, one of the directions in which the exploration of higher energies by the LHC will go to see whether th there is any experimental evidence for this so-called supersymmetry. I mean, the, the, the problem of if I knew how to build the theory of quantum gravity, I'll be off there doing it now. This is the, the problem we all face. Um, but I ignore it in practice. And the, well, it, it is a problem if you want to explain everything, but I'm a relatively modest person. That I'm finding it difficult enough to deal with the things that we even know so far, if you like. And the reason why in practice we can ignore gravity, uh, quantum gravity, is that where we know that applies, it's at some sort of extreme, let's say the far end of the room here, and if that end of the room is the heat of a summer's day, the LHC is less than halfway across the room. So it is so far away that on the one hand I can ignore it, which is good news in dealing with what's happening here, but of course the bad news is I don't get any clues from data to help me construct or know if any ideas I've had are, are right. So that's the, the catch-22 of quantum gravity uh, at the moment. Uh, there's a question right at the very back. Yeah, uh, yes, um, I'm maybe in common with a lot of people here um, in the position of, of somebody who has a bit of science, but soft science, but in my background, uh, I'm a biologist. Um, biologists can explain things to lay people, most of which they'll understand. Um, we have to take a tremendous amount on trust from particle physicists. And what I would like to know is, is there a possibility that the experiments are finding what they're set out to find? That in some sense they're becoming self-fulfilling prophecies? Um, the question was, are experiments becoming self-fulfilling prophecies? I think probably the, the background to the, the question, which is actually a good one, that the detectors are so complicated, there's so much coming out, you have to have or do you have to have some sense in advance of what you're looking for? And the answer to that clearly is that you do design things to be sensitive to things that you suspect might be there. But the question as to whether there are things going on that you would miss, that is the question I think that is behind what you're asking. Is that, is that fair? Okay. Okay. Peter, what do you want to throw into that? Well, well, um Yes, I, I mean I would add what Frank has said that, that a lot of the uh, of the stuff which is uh, you know rejected fr from, uh, as, from from uh, as as uh, in terms of the outcome of these collisions is rejected because it's uninteresting. We know all that already. So so to to a large extent, uh, we're, we're always looking for the unusual things, the exceptional things. Uh, and uh, in de designing the machines, of course, we, we, we have some ideas fed in by, th by theorists ab about what sort of unusual things there might be. And, uh, you know, when you've found all the things that the theorists have told you that uh, they, they think you ought to find, you, you should go on uh, looking for the things that they haven't told you you ought to find. Yes. Um, I mean, I think... I sometimes draw the analogy with uh, the advance of knowledge 
working towards the theory of everything, which I put quotes around, is like trying to find the end of the rainbow. That the further you go, the rainbow recedes, but along the way you pass a lot of interesting things, some of which you were expecting and some of which you weren't. So the LHC certainly will find... It is the, the best way we have of accessing a very early epoch of the universe and seeing what was there. Whether we will see everything that was there, we certainly won't. But we will see many things that were there, and from that, hopefully, our conceptual picture will be that much sharper, that it will help guide us to the next step. Whether you miss things along the way, it's hard to look back through science. You can only sort of look back in history and see if there are examples where things were missed and came up later. And if you've got one, let me know. But Peter, you have a thought? Well, I, I think I'd add to Frank's comments about you know, understanding things from the early universe. There are, after all, people called astronomers and astrophysicists who, who are studying uh, the universe and back, back further and further in, in time as they reach further and further out in, in space. And uh, in tandem with, with experiments on machines like the LHC, there's all this evidence coming in about uh, the properties of the early universe. And, and people who work in particle physics always need to be aware of, of, of things which the astronomers and astrophysicists have found, which they're puzzled about, which don't fit in with what particle physicists have, have already found in their machines. Right. And that's still part of the story. I'll, if you can bring the microphone down to the gentleman in the front, and while you do that, there were some questions that came in uh, from the web. Um, one of them was, you know, how does this discovery uh, affect the man in the street, the person in the street, here and now. Um, do you want to have any thoughts on that? You see, well, I, I love I, the difficult I, ones to you. I, I, I mean, I, I tend to answer that, that, that question about the, uh, how it, will it affect the man in the street by a rather down-to-earth answer, saying it, 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 it won't solve the, the, our economic problems. Right. <laughs> But, it, but the cost of the LHC is a snip compared with the money that people have thrown at those economic problems, is the thing one can also say. Um, yes, sir, in the front row. Um, I have to pre preface my question by saying that um, I'm also a biologist, and my A-level physics was about as far as I ever got in that field. So my question is a naive one, but I would like to try and understand something about why it is that the guys at CERN know that they found the Higgs particle. What are the properties that the theory in 1964 by Professor Higgs and his colleagues specifically um, proposes which tell the guys in CERN that they found the Higgs boson and not some other novel particle? I'd like to understand that, please. Right. Well, while Peter thinks, let me just sort of preface, because you can probably easily say this. Of the six people, only one of them, that was Peter in 1966, pointed out that a consequence of the idea is that this ephemeral particle should decay and it's got various choices of things it might decay into. And the more massive the thing, the more light, the more friendly it is, if you like. It's not quite true to say it will decay into the more massive things more often than light things, but it's a very unusual pattern of decays. So with that background, where are we along that route so far as of July the 4th or of August the 13th? Well, I, th I think we're a little little way along it, but but um, the, I, I mean the 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 thing this thing whatever it may be has been been recognised via uh, a number of different decay channels in the jargon, and uh, on on the whole that that seems to be the the expected pattern for a, a, a boson of this this type. Um, as I think I said earlier, more has to be done to to sort of quantify this and uh, see just pre just precisely what it is what it is they've got because uh, there is well there's a, there's a, a fairly sort of straightforward prediction if it if it's the if this is the the one and only mm. uh, Higgs boson of of the standard model. But the, there might be um, more than more than one, and that, and that gives uh, gives room for, for for there being some variety in in what the 
uh, ongoing measurements, analyses will, will turn up. But, but it, the, the actual recognition of, of, of this kind of particle, as Frank said, it's, it's, it's got a, a very char characteristic signature, mm. and that's what's been found. I mean, to, to give a little bit more on that, the, the most massive particle that we know of, the top quark, is far too massive to be produced in the decays of the Higgs boson. However, by the mysteries of quantum theory, you can create things what are called virtual particles that bubble in and out of existence and can influence measurements even though they don't directly appear. So this is a slightly indirect statement, but one of the decay channels of this particle completely fits with the idea that the top quark is playing a very important role in enabling this thing to happen. There is a direct measurement, not from CERN actually, but from Fermilab, Chicago in the States, that the decay into bottom quarks, which is the next heaviest quarks, is also very important. We as yet have no evidence that it decays into any of the other quarks, which, if you're an optimist, you could say, well, they're very light, so you wouldn't expect to yet. But eventually you will have to see those things, to be sure. So that's an example of why we need to wait a while and take more data to answer that. There is direct evidence that it couples well, very strongly to the Z and W boson that I mentioned, the weak force carrier. There is as yet no evidence at all that it, that it couples to what we call leptons. That's the electron, the muon, and the tau or neutrinos. Um, don't suddenly think, aha, what's going on here? We would not expect that yet. But this time next year, if there is not evidence of that, that might be interesting. So there are certain things about it I think we're pretty confident with. Whether we have found uh, the real deal or its twin is an issue to be, be sorted. One thing that is not yet known is whether it has no spin at all. I mean, this word scalar that was mentioned earlier in the technical jargon, the original idea was that this thing has no spin. The data at the moment, you cannot tell one way or the other. But by the end of this year, perhaps, that we will also know one way or the other. Is that fair, well, Peter? Yes. I mean, I'd, I'd qualify that by saying that because it because one of the decays which, which is al already rather well observed is, is, a, is a decay into two photons, that, that restricts the options of, mm. uh, in terms of spin considerably. Yes. If it's not spin zero, it's, it's got spin two units, mm. essentially. Uh, and the sp thing with spin two units lo looks, looks a bit un unlikely. Yes. Yes. Uh, the, if it turns out to have spin two, that's something completely normal. That would be extraordinary. <laughs> yes, yes. But, but the, the other thing I would add to what Frank said is, is that, uh, and this is maybe further in the future, uh, it may be some time before we're, we're, we're clear whether this thing is, is actually a, a truly elementary particle. It could be made up of, of something else, some out of things we know already. Yes. And um, the, the exploration of whether it's... <laughs> Ele truly elementary or, or, or composite in some sense, I think is going to take a little, little time. Yes, I think, I mean, is it fair to say that, you know, back in 1964, all six of you, you, you sidestepped the question of what actually causes this to happen. You said, let us suppose that this following phenomenon happens and then we can do wonderful things. But the source and detail of it is a completely open question. Yes, I mean, I, th I think in, in terms of detail, I've, I was probably the, 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 the person who, who put the m most detail into the model, and that's what now what's sort of incorporated into the uh, standard model as, as currently understood. But it was still uh, putting some, an extra ingredient in by hand as if it were something elementary that is involved, and the elementary new elementary particles, new and a, a corresponding uh, field. Uh, and uh, that's just the, the pedagogically simplest thing to do. It's not the only way to do it. And the, the, uh, the system which we, we know in physics, which, which bears the most similarity theoretically to the, these phenomena, is the phenomenon of superconductivity in metals and alloys at very low temperature. And the corresponding uh, phenomenon there, which gives rise to superconductivity, is, arises from something which is composite, something made out of electron pairs. Uh, and that was how, how this type of theory first arose. So it might be true in, of this elementary particle system too. We just don't know yet. I think, actually, as time's 
coming to an end. That's a wonderful way to begin to tie this up. I'll just make three little comments. First of all, I was very pleased that we had two biologists asking questions because it gave me the opportunity to say, isn't it all applied physics since the discovery of DNA using X-ray crystallography? That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that we, we can claim you as one of ours. Um, secondly, I think uh, that what you just said is perhaps the most important thing we don't know yet. And that was well, stimulated by another question earlier on, you know, about uh, could you be missing things and so forth. Nature knows things which we haven't even thought of asking yet. And when asked a question, there was a question on the blog, you know, um, what is the use of this? Um, to the scientists, we now know for certain something that we were only thinking was a maybe a few weeks ago. We've now got a new foundation upon which to build things, a new certainty that you can build structures New questions that now begin to emerge, which themselves will find answers and, and raise further questions. So I think it is not that you're trying to get to the end of the rainbow, I mix my metaphors up now, but um, you're seeing things through a mist, and the mist gradually clears and they get sharper. And I think the CERN DG's analogue, have we found the boson or its twin, it is a good way to, to sort of finish. But I think finally, Peter, thank you very much for your patience that... 48 years after writing these equations down, I'm so pleased, actually, that you're here to see it. <laughs> so am I. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I confess I don't follow absolutely all of what these gentlemen have been saying today. But I am, as the questioner suggested, I am willing to take it on trust that today we are in the presence of genius and that today we are in the presence of somebody, or even some two people, who have made a huge contribution to the history of science and who in 500 years' time they will look back on as people who really made a difference. So thank you for what you've done. And, and today I feel as if we're in a, truly a, in the city of enlightenment. Now, I know that Frank Close is a fantastic writer, because I've read his books. And I can tell you that this is a, a very readable and exciting account from a very intelligent man. Um, what's really exciting today is that Professor Higgs has also agreed that he will join Frank in the signing tent and will sign copies of the book. And so if you'd like to buy a copy of the book, please would you join us round in the signing tent to the right. If you wouldn't mind allowing us to go first, um, I know you'll have lots of questions. And if you are in the queue, try not to take too long in discussing with these gentlemen about the finer points of, of the theory, because we haven't got terribly long in the signing tent. So please, let's finish off by another round of applause for these great gentlemen. Thank you very much. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.